Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Professor Stephen Cowley. He's a director of the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, and we're going to talk about his work on fusion. Really interesting. So, uh, Steve, thank you for coming. How are you doing? Thank you very much, Richard. I'm, I'm good. Okay. So tell me a bit about your background. How did you get to work on fusion and how did you get to the uh, the Princeton lab? I grew up in Britain. My father was a professor. And I think when I was about 11 years old, told me about fusion. He said, this is, you know, kind of the great goal of everybody who worries about energy because it's a marvelous source of energy, but we don't yet know how to do it. So, you know, for an 11 year old, that was pretty inspiring. And mm. I was always interested in physics in school. And so when I was a student, I got more interested in fusion. And I came here to Princeton as a for my doctorate um, and work, and started working on fusion. And, I, and I've been doing that ever since then, which was in the 1980s. Um, oh, wow. So, I mean, it, it may be a, a laughable question, but what's so hard about fusion? Why has it taken decades and decades and it still doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, we're not there yet. What's so difficult about the problem of, of fusion? So fusion is the way stars make energy. They make energy by taking the nuclei of small atoms and joining them together to make bigger atoms. For instance, our sun is joining hydrogen together to make helium. And when it does that, it releases a certain amount of energy each time. And that's what keeps the sun hot. Mm. So stars do it, but they do it because they have immense you know, gravity. And that holds in very, very hot fuel, the center of of our sun is at about 15 million degrees. And so you have to create those conditions like in the middle of star to make fusion happen. And we've be, been able to do that. In fact, here at Princeton in the 1990s, we got temperatures from about 250 million degrees to about 400 million degrees in our experiments wow. and, and made fusion happen in our experiments. So we know we can do it, 
Now, the real question is, can we do it at a cost, you know, the consumer wants to pay for their electricity? Because what we'd like to do is to make fusion happen. That will make heat and then boil water with that heat and power a turbine and make electricity. And that way we could make basically little little stars on Earth. So you mentioned the interior of the sun is 15 million degrees, but you went way above that, it sounds like, 250 million, 400 million. Why did you have to go so much hotter than the sun? And what, you well, know, what are some of the other key elements of being able to enable fusion? So one of the things is that the sun actually, it, it, it's kind of interesting. This, the, the, the sun produces obviously a lot of energy, um, but the amount of energy it produces per you know, square me, uh, cubic meter is, is quite small, actually. So it does fusion very slowly, and that's fine for the sun. But if we want to do fusion in a small space so that we can use it to make electricity, we're going to have to do it more faster than the sun does, and therefore we have to do it at higher temperature than the sun. Hmm. Uh, so when you I, say faster, like what what are some of the metrics? Um, the energy output needs to be greater in a short period of time, or yeah, I mean, what I mean, what needs to be faster about it? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. Well, you know, what what would make a good power station would be something that's about the size of a current power station and produce about the same amount of power. Well, a typical power station produces something like a billion watts of, of energy. And so we would like to make a fusion power station that does something like that. And that requires us to have an energy density, um, you know, power density, that's much bigger than the sun. And obviously, the sun is so enormous in size that even though it has a tiny amount of power density, that adds up to an awful lot of power coming out of the sun. So we've worked out the numbers, and, and we think we can do that at a temperature probably of about 250 million degrees. Um, wow. And the, way, the difficulty is, so how do you hold the fuel if it's that hot? Because if it touches the walls, It'll melt the walls, and if it um, and if the walls touch it, it'll get cold. So the, what we do is we um, we hold the fuel in a cage of magnetic field, so it's kind of suspended away from the walls, pushed off the walls, and holds so it has no contact with the walls. And we mm. always say we're making a, a bottle of magnetic field. Uh, outside the magnetic field, is there a vacuum? Yes. Like in the chamber itself, like how high is the vacuum yes. so that so, there's no transmission of energy? Right. So what we do uh, to make these experiments is we, we evacuate the air from a donut-shaped vessel, and we apply a very big magnetic field to that vessel, and then we squirt in the f fuel, and we pass an electric current of several million amps through the fuel, and that gets it to be hot, and the magnetic field holds it hot, and there's a gap between the fuel and the wall in which there's a vacuum. And so it doesn't touch the wall. And the sort of record temperatures that we've got is up to 400 million degrees, but a sort of optimal temperature will be about 250 million degrees. What's the uh, the hottest temperature ever produced by anyone on Earth? I think it's that 400 million degrees. Wow. It depends what you mean by, by temperature, of course, but um, uh, people have produced more energy density in a collision in accelerators, but nobody's produced it in a, in a volume like this, uh, hotter than about 400 million degrees. It's really kind of a world record. We would say that uh, our lab is the hottest place on the planet. 
Yeah, oh, that's that's amazing. What what are you fusing? So, Hydrogen. Or yeah. Oil? So the so the easiest fusion reactions to do are always between um, hydrogen versions of hydrogen. Hydrogen actually comes in three forms. There's ordinary hydrogen, which in the nucleus has just one proton. And that's what you get in H2O in water. And there's heavy hydrogen, which is called deuterium, which you get a very small amount of it in seawater. And uh, deuterium has one proton and one neutron in its, in its nucleus. And then there's super heavy hydrogen, and that's called tritium. And that's very rare and has to be made from lithium. And fusion reaction that's easiest to do is between deuterium and tritium. And mm. we actually did the first reaction. We did the first experiments, which were done with tritium here at Princeton. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Oh, wow. Okay. And so the ideal is a mixture of deuterium and tritium, no you know, regular hydrogen in it? No regular hydrogen, but you have to make your tritium. And you make that by using the reaction makes a neutron. And that neutron, when it bombards, lithium makes tritium. So actually, the fuel is really lithium and deuterium, both of which can come from seawater. And there's about 30 million years worth of, of fuel in seawater. Which is extraordinary. I mean, you know, we could power the whole planet for about year, uh, 30 million years, right, with fusion. Yeah, so that that's is amazing. Everybody wants to do it, right? It's the perfect way to make energy, except for this little <laughs> detail, which is it's quite hard to do, you know. What about the um, the pressures? And I mean, is there any pressure involved in the system, or it's just super high temperature, and you need obviously materials that can create the right magnetic field and then withstand these uh, the reaction? Well, so actually in the middle of the plasma, um, the pressure of the fuel, the fuel is very diffuse. It's very low density, but the fuel has a pressure of several atmospheres. And we push on the fuel with the magnetic field. One can think of magnetic field as, as having a pressure. Mm. And typically, uh, if you have a field from a superconducting magnet, you can get up to pressures of you know 100 200 300 atmospheres of pressure um to push on on your fuel with you've got to hold it off the wall so you've got to have some pressure that pushes it in towards the middle yeah uh what about the shape of the magnetic bottle is it just spheroid or are there other shapes that seem to work better i saw one like a tokamak reactor that was a torus like a donut yeah. you know what are some of the geometries that work there versus not it turns out because magnetic field is like these imaginary lines in space that provide force. And if you want to, you want to make sure that those lines stay inside your container. And so the optimum kind of shape for that is, is in fact torus or a donut shaped. 
you know, a ring donut shape, like a Krispy Kreme donut. And, and that's because a sphere doesn't work. Because if you try to lay lines on the surface of a sphere, which is a bit like hair on the top of your head, at some point, there's that point you have on, on the back of your head where there is zero hair, right? Mm. Where all, all that hair goes away from that point. So you can't have magnetic field confine uh, fuel in a sphere, but you can in a torus because you can mm. have the lines lie on the torus and nowhere on the torus is the magnetic field zero. It, 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 it's, a, it's a mathematical theorem called um, rather inelegantly the hairy ball theorem. Is there any other shapes that uh, that might work? You know, can has anyone used computer modeling to try? You know, I'm sure there's models of of these fusion reactors and you know, and supercomputers. But um, are there any other shapes that have come up that, so that it could be a solution? There's a a bunch of young researchers in my lab who are working on something called a stellarator, which is it's what we call topologically a torus, right? But it, it's not symmetrical, so it's it's three dimensional. It kind of winds around and it has a helical pitch as well as it going around in a torus. So imagine kind of a bumpy donut. Mm. And it turns out that that idea was very hard to get to work. The idea was had, you know, 50 years ago to make a three-dimensional kind of magnetic field. But 50 years ago, the computers were too small to make it work. And now the computers have got big enough. We're computing on the computer optimal shapes and um there's some young people in our lab particularly a young woman named uh, elizabeth paul who's come up with some very interesting shapes that may make sort of optimal fusion reactors um, so i'm pretty excited that there is sort of new things on the horizon right now um, which is good because we're getting a lot of uh, attention from venture capitalists who want to put money into fusion because mm. As we get closer to market, fusion would make sort of the ideal way to make electricity. And if you think about the world energy market, it's about $8 trillion a year. Uh, a small percentage of that market, and you've made a lot of money. Right. Uh, and um, fusion could be, you know, it could, it could generate 50%, 60% of the world's electricity. And in the future, of course, most of our energy will probably be delivered as as electricity we're going to be running electric cars and our heating systems will have heat pumps and things like that so it's a it's a very interesting time lots of money coming into fusion because people want to finish the job kind mm. of got the science to a point where we know we can do fusion but as i was, as i was saying before that's not the end goal the end goal is to do cheap fusion so that we can make electricity for people to power their homes and their cars with. Is, is the price the only issue right now, or what are, what are some of the other major issues? Well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a number of issues around that, right? Um, one of which is how long does the device last? Because it it's being, you know, inside this device, you've got this, this uh, fusing plasma. Plasma is just a very, very hot gas. And when you take it up to temperatures of like 250 million degrees, of course, you've got a very, very hot gas, and that's a plasma. And that can, it can damage the walls. It can damage the material around when the magnetic field is not quite perfect. Mm. And 
the neutrons that are produced during the reaction can also damage the walls. And we don't know how long the walls will last. And one of the big areas of research is to try and find new materials that will last a long time so that when you build one of these reactors, you don't have to keep replacing the walls and, and, and that kind of thing. That's what will make it economic. What about fusion powering fission? You know, if you're able to create enough neutrons and then they go into a chamber with, uh, you know, uranium or, you know, whatever fissile material, or what if you use fission to power fusion? Do you think there's any marriage there that, that could be had? Well, you know, there's been a suggestion over many years that you could do what's called fusion-fission hybrids, where the fusion powers fission systems so that you don't have what's called a fission criticality. You would just have a system which, when you turn off the fusion, you know, all the reactions stop. The problem with this is that you bring all the problems of conventional fission, the waste problems and some of the safety problems, whereas the waste from fusion is helium, which is not, you know, a problem. And the safety of a fusion system is very easy to guarantee because it's very easy to stop it. Right, you can stop it in a microsecond, hmm. and it will, it'll stop reacting. So, unlike fission systems, there's kind of no runaway scenarios. So, I personally don't think we should pursue fission driven by fusion, because I think that it just complicates the issue. We want to make pure fusion work. Well, I mean, have people done? I'm sure people have done calculations on it. Would it? Does it have the potential to be a you know a good intermediate step? It's not a lot easier than just doing fusion. Um, and it may, in mm. fact, be harder um, because mm. of all the things you have to do to make sure that the fission system is safe. Mm. Okay. So I'm not convinced it's actually an intermediate step. It might be a further step. Mm-hmm. And then going, going back to fusion, from what I've heard, there are different kinds or different main models of fusion. So I guess, I guess magnetic confinement is your model, but what are the other ones that are, people are working on? So there's one other key way. There's lots of kinds of magnetic confinement, but there's one other key way that's different, and that is to make tiny little fusion explosions by taking fusion fuel and imploding it with a very large laser. So what you're doing there is you're essentially making a capsule inside of which you have your fusion fuel that's maybe less than a millimeter across, tiny little capsule, and then this happens at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in, in, in California. They take a big laser and they shine it onto the surface, basically, of, of this capsule. And the surface then kind of ablates, which means it evaporates. Um, and as it does so, it produces a rocket effect that squeezes the capsule down until it gets to high density and high temperature, at which point it does fusion. And last year, they did a brilliant experiment in which they actually got a capsule to what we call ignite, where the fusion inside the capsule was so strong that it made more fusion happen. So it's a little fusion explosion, basically. And they got 1.3 million joules of energy, which is about equivalent to uh, a fair-sized hand grenade from from a capsule that's less than a millimeter across. Oh, wow. Yeah. What were the drawbacks for that system, though? I mean, I guess... You'd have to start it, get the energy out and stop. The capsule, I guess, would be destroyed or consumed. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like a stepwise type thing. You have to have a laser the size of a football field. Oh, jeez. But they're learning a lot from it. And that might be another route to commercial fusion. 
they set a big step forward last year um, in great celebration of, of their achievement. Any other methods that show any promise? You know, um, basically most of the most of the ways that I I think show promise can be categorized in one of those two categories. There is, for hmm. instance, a lot of work on sort of straight magnetic bottles that they, they don't make it into a donut to make a sort of a, a fiber almost of fusion happen. But it's it's imploded by having a magnetic field around it which squeezes it down. Um, mm. And there, there is a couple of com- companies, one in particular out of Washington State, who are developing concepts like that. Um, are there any um like flow system type fusion uh you know if you use the donut and you were able to the plasma moves around the donut which maybe it does already uh maybe if it was accelerated around would that do anything for you know the effect of fusion would any flow kind of system work and why or so there is um there's a company called zap energy which is again up in washington state and that what they're trying to do is have a flowing fuel and a magnetic field, and that kind of stabilizes the instabilities inside it to make a fusion device. So it's a combination of flow and, and magnetic field. It's a pretty inventive idea, and they've got some reasonable results, but they're not really quite in the fusion regime yet. But they might soon be. Mm. So what are the biggest uh, inputs? You said the, the cost is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. So what, what costs so much to run a fusion reaction? Is it you know the magnetic confinement? Is it the materials? Is it uh, you know the energy needed to put into it to get it up to temperature? What are the major factors? Well, so one of the things that we you know really costs in our experiments is making that magnetic field. I mean, we have to make immense magnetic fields, and up to now at Princeton, all our magnetic fields have been made with copper coils. You, you, you know, you have a big coil made of copper. But people are developing new superconductors that allow us to make superconducting coils. And the advantage of superconductors is, you know, they don't take energy to run them. And therefore, you know, in a power station, you don't want to be having to use half your electricity to power your coils. So superconducting coils is a key technology for us. But they're expensive and they're just developing them. And there's a there's a very active company out of Boston, spun out of MIT called Commonwealth Fusion Systems, which got two billion in venture capital funding, part of it from the Gates Foundation and uh, or at least from Bill Gates, George Soros, various other high net worth individuals have put money in uh, to this company and they're developing high temperature superconducting coils. This is using yttrium based superconductors to make very, very strong magnetic fields. Um, it's pretty exciting, but very hard. And mm. again, you know, if, if if they succeed in making these very high fields, that'd be a big step forward for fusion. Oh, how strong of a magnetic field is needed uh, to contain the you know the fusion plasma? So the, there's a swap off between magnetic field and size. Uh, if you could a, fu- a, a fusion system ignite, if you either make it big or you make it strong magnetic field, mm. so. The machine that's being built in uh, southern France, which is the international fusion machine called ITER, has a field of five Tesla. And its radius of the donut is about uh, six meters, five and a bit meters. And the people at MIT want to do something with a much stronger magnetic field of 12 
at a half Tesla, and their radius will be down at something like three meters or, mm. or smaller. And that means, you know, you can, if if you can get these immense magnetic fields, you can um, you, you 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 can make smaller devices. Uh, the question is, will they be cheaper? Maybe, um, of course, smaller things are not always cheaper. I would right. say that Lamborghinis cost more than Ford trucks. You know. Mm. So what's um what are some of the other levers that you can pull to you know again stronger magnetic fields, maybe smaller footprint. Um, what else is another major contributor to cost that you can work on, you know, to improve this system? So the size of this is really determined by turbulence. When we heat up to this very, very high temperatures, it the the plasma kind of bubbles, you know, like a saucepan on a, on on the hob, right? Because it right in the middle of of the plasma, it's very, very high temperature, and the temperature decreases to the outside what happens is it gets these little turbulent bubbles of eddies that move the plasma around and through the magnetic field and if you can suppress that turbulence we would all, if you could suppress the turbulence completely we'd already have fusion the, the turbulence is the thing because it, it cools the plasma by taking heat out and if you can make the plasma hot and not have to keep putting heat into it then it would be easier to get to fusion. And so some of the some of the work now with these new configurations is to minimize the turbulence. And that we've only been able to do in the last two years. Um, so the, the turbulence comes from what? Like imperfections in the in the shape of the magnetic containment? No, not just that. Plates. It also comes from, you know, when you put a the saucepan on the on the on the hob, what you do is you heat the bottom of the saucepan. And then the water at the bottom gets hot and hot water rises and cold water falls. And so you make a little, what we call an eddy. Right? And that circulation of the eddy brings cold water to the bottom and hot water to the top. And, and then again, the heating at the bottom repeats that, repeats that. Same thing happens in a fusion reactor. You'll get little circulation patterns that, um, that, that do this naturally because you're heating the middle with your fusion. Um, and so, most of my lifetime, I've spent trying to understand that turbulence and minimize it. And in the last few years, our computer models of the turbulence have got good enough that they are pretty good at predicting exactly what will happen in an experiment, which is great because it means that we can essentially do experiments on the computer and optimize our routes to fusion on the computer and then use that to drive future experiments hmm. uh, how important is it to uh you know the structure of the takamak to uh to have it again within the right tolerances and as as perfect a donut shape as possible you know again the uh the heating of it um i don't know is there, does it help if you do it faster and faster like a shorter ramp or a, a different kind of ramp speed on the heating like what would minimize turbulence or at least make it uh more definable and less chaotic well I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting question. We would like to get it to steady state. Mm. So the speed at which we do things, uh, we we have to take that out of the equation. And in steady state, um, the imperfections don't help that turbulence. It's true. Um, and nothing is ever completely symmetrical. So that's a bit of a problem. But one of the, the things is how you structure the magnetic field inside it. 
because the magnetic field isn't uniform. It's, I would say it's wound a bit like, um, you know, the lines in space that are magnetic field lines. If you thought of those as pieces of wool, and if you ever, if your grandmother, like mine, used to knit sweaters, my, my grandmother made the most amazing sweaters, and um, sometimes she'd have to wind up a ball of wool. And when you do yeah. that, you don't wind all in one direction because it falls apart. You wind on the ball and then you twist the ball and then you wind the wall to lie over the top and cross the the previous mm. wall in order to hold it down. And then you keep mm. doing that with a ball of wool and it makes a nice tight ball of wool. And in the, just the same way, you want the magnetic field lines to do that. You don't want them all pointing in the same direction. You want them layered over each other so that they hold each other down. And that turns out to be a very good analogy of how um, the turbulence works. Because what it likes to do is move a whole field line out and another whole field line in. And it can't do that if they're not in the, huh. in the same direction. Wait, so a healthy system or a system that works, you'll literally see like a, a, the magnetic field lines will move in like a periodic fashion or they'll, they'll do sudden jumps. Well, a whole, a, whole line of, a whole line of plasma on a magnetic field line, like a tube, will move out together, and it'll it'll try and move through the other magnetic field lines. Hmm. But they can't get out of the way if they're not pointing in the same direction. And so this is called the interchange, because you're interchanging magnetic field lines. And if you want to minimize that, if you minimize that, you can really tame the turbulence. Hmm. So an some of the shaping of the field that has been done in devices like the General Atomics um, Fusion Experiment in San Diego has a particular shape that's very good to minimize turbulence. Oh, interesting. Um, what about modeling of you know, how the fusion proceeds versus temperature or turbulence versus temperature and then fluctuation of temperature? Like, What does that uh, look like? Is there any efficiency to be had there? Well, you know, modeling the... the, the the optimum temperature is something that we are doing a lot of at the moment because you know we're hoping that this big experiment in southern France, ETA, comes online in maybe four more years. Mm -hmm. And then that will actually get us to a point where we have a self-heated fusion plasma that's called ignited, or or close to that point. And when it does that, it will um it's like lighting a fire. You know, you can get some fire if you have like a gas poker and you, you turn the gas on and the wood will burn for a bit. But if it's not really properly lit, when you when you turn off the gas, the wood will go out. But if you've got enough enough burning wood, it will sustain the wood and the fire will keep going. And you can even put on another log and the fire will keep going. What we're hoping in that experiment is that we get to that state where it needs no energy to keep going. It will go on its own and you'll get a really burning plasma. And that will be fantastic. I mean, for my career, that might be the last great experiment of my career um, mm. to see that happen. And I you know, think that will be very exciting. Yeah. Well, what happens as the hydrogen gets consumed and more and more helium is built up in the reaction chamber? Like what, what does the profile look like in the beginning of the reaction? And then as you burn through literally the... Uh, or fuse through the, the hydrogen feedstock? Well, this is another good question. What happens generally is that the turbulence not only pushes heat out of the plasma, but it also pushes out the helium. 
So that's actually convenient because then we can pump it away at the edge. Hmm. Um, so it pushes it out, it gets to the edge, and then by which time it's cool, and then it then we we pump it out at the edge and take take it away. And we put in more fuel, more deuterium, more tritium, which are the fuels of the reaction. Does the reaction have to stop? No. And you have to start it again? Or no? no, that just, just happens continuously through the through the process. Turbulence is going on all the time and it flushes out the helium. So it's a funny thing. We want to minimize the turbulence, but not too much because we do want to flush out what we call the helium, the ash, because huh. it's, the, it's the burnt stuff. But what happens as the helium builds up, you, you said it, uh, I guess it increases the turbulence and then which kicks out more helium to keep it into somewhat of a steady state. But it's, I guess in effect, it becomes kind of like a flow system where you have an outlet the depletion of the hydrogen and the outlet of helium continuously, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, happens, um, uh, how did, what does the helium do when that's still resident in the chamber? Does it slow down the fusion? Does it? Uh, it dilutes you know, it a bit, but, but it you know it dilutes it a bit. But we don't usually build up more than a few percent of helium. Hmm. Most of it, most of it gets flushed out. Oh. Um, in a plasma of a given shape, where is the like? What does the fusion profile look like? Does it happen in right the in center the along a line? Yeah, or it's, is it it's like... the, the, the highest temperatures are in the middle, so most of the fusion is right in the middle. And the fusion reaction between deuterium and tritium produces helium and a neutron. Um, and the neutron doesn't get captured because it goes through the magnetic field and hits the wall, and so mm. that carries energy to the wall. But the the helium that's produced has lots of energy and it has to give up its energy to the plasma by slowing down, by bumping into, you know, deuterium and tritium. And then when it's slowed down, it gets flushed out by the by the turbulence. Huh. So that's all convenient because you, you, you want to use up the energy of the of, of of the helium because that helps you keep your plasma hot. So that kind of suggests like if you need 250 million degrees to start it. I would guess the temperature requirements may go down throughout the reaction to some lower steady state because the helium giving maybe a little bit of extra energy to the deuterium. Yeah, it is. It's uh, the helium is heating the um, the deuterium because it went, after the fusion reaction, the helium has a temperature which is like um, four or five billion <laughs> helium, and there's not very much of it. Helium. The helium then gives up its heat. To the deuterium and the tritium, and the right. deuterium and tritium make more helium, um, and so fusion can be self-heating. Mm. And it's that. But I mean, is there a is there an ignition temperature versus a you know once the plasma is going, does it can it operate at a lower temperature? Because again, now maybe the helium is contributing a bit to the energy of the system since it's self-heating. Um, once it gets going, of course, it, it, and it's self-heated, you want to keep it in that state. And so we hope in the next generation of machines that we'll be able to control that burn with actuators from the outside so that we just keep it in a nice burning state. That's a, One of the actuators is how much fuel you'll feed it. And so to get more deuterium in there and tritium in there, we throw in frozen pellets. And those frozen pellets are fired in almost from a BB gun type thing. And, it, it, and they go into the middle and they evaporate in the middle, and they add more deuterium to the fusion burn. It's a bit like hmm. putting a log on the fire, you know. What about the tritium, though? Um, we can do that with tritium, too. 
So I'm sure you're playing with like fuel mixtures, deuterium, tritium ratios, maybe yeah. pulsed injection of pellets versus continuous. I mean, I guess there's a lot of knobs to, to play with yeah. in this to optimize it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we haven't done that yet, really, because in, in the fusion that we've done in my laboratory, you know, mostly we've just put the deuterium and tritium in at the beginning and we've made fusion only for a few seconds. Mm. Um, on on this device that we're building in France, we'll do fusion for minutes and hours. Oh wow! Um, what about a you know? I don't know if you know. I'm thinking of like a gas car, but you know, a, a lean mixture versus a rich mixture. So, a lot of tritium, very little deuterium, or vice versa. What does the resultant plasma and system look like when you do that? Well, of course, you get the best results with fifty fifty. Um, but we probably won't get exactly 50-50, and, and, and we'll have to worry about that. It is true that deuterium can react with itself, but it requires quite a bit more temperature, and so it only has a very few reactions with itself. It's actually a good, if we could really make deuterium the only fuel, that would be very helpful because there's enough deuterium to power the planet for 60 billion years. And <laughs> The planet's not going to exist for more than about 4.5 billion years. So um, that's overkill. Yeah, yeah. Oh, pretty interesting. So what do you think is possible, you know, in the somewhat near future, the next five years or so? And what do you think is going to, will probably take maybe a couple of decades? I think that what we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is the beginning of the phase where we see fusion burns in a number of experiments. And that's going to be really exciting to see because that's when you've made a star and it burns. Now, I think it's probably going to take at least 15, probably more years to actually make some electricity. Um, uh -huh. but, but for a scientist like me, the first thing is, can we make a burn? Right? We've mm. made some fusion, but to make that fusion, we had to inject energy to get it to go. What we would like to do is make a fusion burn so it just burns on its own. Yeah. Um, and that would be terrific. Why does the system last only a few seconds right now? Why why can't it go on longer? Actually, mostly because we um, our all of our systems are only designed for a few seconds, right? For instance, oh. the, the 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 heating beams that keep the plasma hot because we're not burning, we have to put energy in to keep it hot. Um, those heating beams only last a few seconds. Mm. Okay, they, they they won't go on longer. So that's just. That's just because it's an experiment, not a reactor, you know. Okay. And the ITER, that's supposed to be still experiment bench scale, or is that that oh, actually they're attempting to do a real reactor? Well, ITER is really the last of the experiments because it's not going to produce any electricity, but it's going to try all the processes necessary to, to produce electricity. Mm. Um, so in many ways, it's the scientific proof that fusion is possible. Um, but you know it won't be it won't be the first electricity in a in a way that was a bit of a shame but it was a choice we made decision we made you know 15 years ago when when we were debating with all our international partners about building this okay makes sense well very good uh, Stephen. what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and you know where can they go like the website uh, you know how do they get in touch the website for princeton plasma physics lab the website for ITER, which is I-T-E-R, if you just Google ITER Fusion, you'll find their website. 
Um, and obviously, there's a lot of YouTube videos um, which will help you understand. Okay. Thank you very much for your interview. Yeah, I know. It's been a great call. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.